Hello and welcome to episode number 189 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we speak to Doan Gurpinar of Istanbul Technical University, talking about his book, Apparatchiks and Ideologues in Islamist Turkey, the Intellectual Order of Islamism and Populism, published by Palgrave Macmillan. The book gives us a sweeping overview of the public messaging that underpins support for the Erdogan government in Turkey's popular media sphere, as well as some of the individuals and institutions that contribute to the crafting of that message in the pro-government media industrial complex. These days, Erdogan is the figurehead for a potent right-wing brew of religious conservatism and militarist nationalism, all mixed together with a revisionist perspective of both Ottoman history and international politics, fueled by a deep suspicion of the West and resentment about Turkey's position in the global pecking order. Those themes are likely to be central to the ruling alliance's campaigning for the upcoming presidential and parliamentary elections, although that campaigning may take a different form due to the after-effects of the recent earthquakes. But the messaging hasn't always been like this. Gurpinar's book, among many other things, traces how and why things became this way, in sharp contrast with the AKP's earlier, rather more moderate period. Before we get started, don't forget you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Please do. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And if that all wasn't enough, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon its publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Doan Gurpinar. Keep in mind that we actually spoke just before the recent earthquakes, so I wasn't able to ask him about how that may change things. But I did start by asking him off the bat what he wanted to achieve with this book. I have been interested in intellectual history, so I had worked on late autumn year and the early republic, the nationalist ideas, and not only nationalist ideas, but the modernization drive, how the modernization drive and nationalism have coexisted and reinforced each other, etc. So actually, I tried to bring this approach to our contemporary. I tried to give a snapshot of the intellectual field under the AKP order. There are also 
based on the ideological nature of the AKP and also its relation to its more reformist or liberal phase in its first decade of power. I tried to establish a continuum with its reformist phase because there were some drops that survived, but in a modified way. Like, for example, the use of white Turks as interpreting the Turkish political tension between the people in its pure form and the elites. In in the first decade, it has been interpreted in a liberal way. But now, the same discourse turned out to be completely fit in the rising populism of the global populism from Brazil to, to the Trumpism. So actually, it was there. But how it had been twisted. So I tried to find these connections through my book. And there was academia, also media order. And especially in one chapter, I discussed the rise of the public intellectuals. Because no time in Turkey, public intellectuals became so close to power. So the book kind of gives us an overview of the kind of shifting sands, really. As you say, the first couple of terms of the AKP and Erdogan in power had a different kind of alliance and it put out a different message, basically, through the kind of liberal messaging through various intellectuals in the public space. And gradually that, as you say, is metamorphosized over time to become this much more populist message that has become very dominant in the last decade or so. And obviously that has required a shift in terms of the people who are supporting it in the public sphere. And um, you say in the book at one point that, quote, populist politics are defended not by engaged and committed intellectuals, but by apparatchiks operating as political technologists. This book treats these figures not as articulating their genuine opinions, but as apparatchiks playing a structural and functional role in the dynamic power matrix. And it maintains that their apologetics operate as political technology that seeks to inform, guide and justify what should be thought, said and imagined and determine which words and images are permitted and which conceptual constellations are used. So you're, there you're saying basically that the people who are surrounding the government and putting out its message in the media, for example, are pretty much uniformly like opportunistic and they don't really believe what they're saying. That surely could be contested because some of these figures, I feel, really do believe what they say, you know, just because their arguments are not consistent. It doesn't mean that they don't believe them. And just because someone might have like an interest in voicing a particular line, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't believe it as well. Uh, And it also doesn't mean that their arguments aren't emotionally satisfying. So is it fair to kind of characterize the argument that you're making there in that way? Do you really think all the people who go out into the media to defend the government, to support its policies are not sincere? Do you think they all have this kind of opportunistic impulse? Or do you think there are figures out there who are there now defending the government despite the 180 degree shifts that everybody knows about? You know, are there individuals who who really do still believe the lines that they're putting out there? Uh, I think it is a bit simplistic to establish a duality between those who are sincerely believing in what they say and those who are just faking for opportunistic reasons. Because it's a human tendency to believe in what you say. Actually, you play a structural role. You show up there for publicity, for pecuniary rewards. But still, it is not in the human nature to completely fake So there is also a compromise, I believe. For those I define as apparatchiks are mainly the secular intellectuals. Some of them had been liberal or at least reformist, but they 
co-opted to the changing intellectual environment. Not necessarily maybe they just fake, but they have the capacity to adapt to the new circumstances. This is also kind of an adaptation mechanism. And for this, they tend to easily say what they have to say to continue their presence in the media, in the academia, etc. And we're going to come on to some of those constituencies that have changed perhaps and have you know, moved from positions of opposition to the government to supporting it a bit later on. And there's a number of constituencies, including, like you say, like secular constituencies, but also security focused pundits who, you know, focus on defense industry, for example, have shifted line and now are almost uniformly pro-government, pro-Erdogan. So we're going to talk about that later. I also want to now talk, though, about this concept that you discuss in the book of uh, Yerli Vemili, local and national. I think we've talked about this on the podcast in previous episodes, but it's obviously a very key concept that has emerged in recent years, local and national. It's there in all the rhetoric of the government and all the media sort of output that is pushing that line. And it's become this key phrase to basically express this particular right wing state of mind in Turkey, basically describing whether something is, quote, native and authentic and kosher, basically. So could you talk about this concept, you know, how and in what concept did this term, Yerli Vemili, emerge and spread in popularity in Turkey? Actually, it was used specifically for defense industry in the early 2010s. There was a, an early AKP effort to emphasize their contribution to domestic military industrial production. They used this originally for this specific meaning, but in time uh, that turned to be a catch-off phase by the mid-2010s. And actually, it is a time when the peace process have been wrecked. So suddenly AKP changed itself as the real defender of the national interest against the domestic threats. That includes the Kurds, but also those who side with the Kurds, like the liberals, the socialists. And actually, they turned this weapon against Kemalists, who always thought that they were the ultimate defenders of the national interest. So it was actually an effort to claim to the Kemalists that we, actually we are the real defenders of the nation. So it was a kind of a, a retort to the Kemalists claim that they have been the real patriots. So uh, AKP abandoned itself as a Islamist party, but with this Yali ve Milli discourse, they tried to gather all the right-wing and centrist ideas within its platform. And of course, in Turkey, nationalism is, has been and always a catch-all idea. You know, you cannot publicly counter nationalism because it's, it is instinctive to the Kemalist Republican modernist drive. So Erdogan have used this to its own, own agenda or its own purpose. And it's actually now that AKP no more only represents the Islamic agenda, but it represents all the right-wing and right-wing to center agenda. So we're tracking this course basically from a origin based in Islamism that goes back decades and a shift towards a more broad, generally conservative right-wing catch-all party, yeah. you could say. Like, one more thing, the Islamist movement from Arab country Erdogan, the political tradition, 
of course described itself as the as Miligush, so translated to, into English the national outlook but they use the national as really grounded on the authentic Turkish Anatolian tradition so it's not an ethnic it's not national in this ethnic sense especially the Islamists have been always known to be distant to the ethnic definition of the nation they think the ethnic definition of nation is wrong because it artificially creates rifts within the purely Muslim nation which includes the Kurds, Turks, Circassians, etc., etc. And actually, it is the Islamists that really represents the nation in its totality. So there is also an Islamic root to that, because the national outlook, the Miligurish, has been very much oriented to Anatolia. And the traditional Turkish you know, brotherhoods, tarikats, have been also very much distant to the, the rigid practice of Islam coded within Quran. So they had been national, but not, not, not necessarily in the national sense or ethnic sense, but it's kind of the it's a kind of a very populist idea of rooted in this soil, in this Anatolian, you know, steps kind of. Now I want to get into this idea of cultural hegemony or cultural iktidar as the phrase is in Turkish. This is a constant anxiety that's expressed among some pro-government and conservative parts of society. There's this sense that really they've failed to establish themselves and to dominate the cultural sphere, the arts and academia as they originally wished and as they thought would actually happen once political hegemony was achieved. So Erdogan and the AK party might have been in power for two decades and they've transformed the political and bureaucratic landscape, but society has not actually become more religious counterintuitively. And the government has not really been able to push society and its cultural mores in the conservative direction that they want. So there's a sense of society going in a different direction, being basically out of control. And there's nothing really that the government, despite all the control that they have politically, can do about it. So can you just expand a bit on this idea of paranoia, paranoia in government circles of not having cultural hegemony and what that tells us about the character of this government? One of the things AKP ruled that was to open universities throughout Anatolia. So in Turkey, there are, you know, almost 200 or more so universities, many of them state. And also many of them had been in provincial small cities. And for example, once Erdogan was proud that he said that people are not have to go to Ankara or Istanbul to study universities. Of course, there had been many universities in mid-scale cities, but now even the small cities have universities. And this, there was an idea that, you know, if a son of a provincial lets his son or daughter study university in a small town and not in a corrupting metropole, that will continue is cultural fabric while he was taking engineering education and, you know, becomes proficient in math. But he continues to live as his father. So this is actually an obsession that, you know, yeah, it's, it's of course a very basic social rule. Nobody lives like his or her father or mother. But the gap between the generations is now wide open compared to a few generations ago. This creates actually a moral panic. And actually, one of the reasons is that the opening of so much universities, uh, you can actually guide or control kids, but once he or she experiences university life, that becomes harder. 
So for example, there's an interesting guy, Yusuf Kaplan, who openly denounces opening university. Actually, he did it consistently for the last 10 or 15 years. He said it's wrong to open universities. He has his PhD in, in Britain, in communications. He was, for example, showing films of Tarkovsky and uh, Bergman in Canal Yedi in 1990s. But because actually he had faced all this cultural appeal in his youth, he said that, you know, we will lose cultural power. And actually he is kind of a Jeremiah. He was always a Jeremiah against those who proclaimed the rise of uh, Islamically learned new intelligence here. And actually, now he writes as I was I was right. He doesn't say we are losing on moral grounds. They never say that. They they say we lose on cultural grounds. It is it's a way of not saying the real the real thing. You've also got a great chapter on the news channel Ahaber as basically a symbol or standard bearer of the AKP's popular messaging strategy in the media. This is a channel that was taken over well over a decade ago by government-friendly business groups. And uh, you write in the book that Ahaber has been very successful in imbuing the AKP constituency with conspiratorial thinking. It convinced conservative voters that the party, the government and the country, hence equating all three, was under constant attack facing a joint assault from the West, Jews, international capital and other secretive organisations referred to as lobbies. For every problem, a perpetrator, generally external, non-Muslim, could be found and thereby responsibility avoided. And this propaganda enabled the AKP constituency to bond emotionally and identify with the party. As a result, the bulk of its supporters have not abandoned the party, even after severe economic contraction and hyperinflation. So could you just paint a picture for us of Ahaber and describe its place, its function in the media landscape? Uh, the new TV, so the private channels since 1990s throughout the world, in the, in the US, in Europe, is a show business. What Ahaba did is like Fox News. It made also politics a show business. So it, it actually Ahaba demonstrates the best where AKP transforms into a political business rather than ideo- an ideological, ideological motivated political movement. There's only one reason for Akihabara to exist, to keep votes, maybe not to create new votes. Actually, as long as AKP can keep its own voters, that's enough. So the thing is not to convince new voters, but to make the voters stay within the party. And for this, they use extravagant conspiracy theories. There's a mythical cult of Erdogan. So Akihabara is and has been very successful in creating this aura. And of course, people in social media or other places in Turkey mocks Ahaber. It's ridiculous. But ridiculous works. They do it on purpose. So the, the hostel or the you know pandestair play their game by speaking of you know extravagant claims, etc. And actually when you go uh, you know a local shop you tend to see Ahaber is open in the TV channels. Actually, in the last one year, I think I, I see more Habertrix and less Ahaber. So this is my personal observation. But I see Ahaber, you know, when I go to local shop, he, he just looks at Ahaber and it's ridiculous, you know, uh, claims. This question of the effectiveness of Ahaber is really interesting because you write that 
The party's propaganda machine may have failed to convert the centrist audience, but it has served to inculcate a simulation of AKP normality. The AKP required a rhetorical bombast to maintain and reproduce its populist legitimacy and thus sustain its political power. And I think that's a great point because sometimes we see some like erstwhile liberal supporters of the AKP argue that this bombastic style that's represented by our Haber has basically ruined the chemistry of the government and it sent it down a rabbit hole and led to its current struggles. But looking at it another way, you could argue that, in fact, you know, doubling down through such strategies has really helped bind core voters to the party and it's maintained this mobilised core constituency despite all the difficulties, particularly economically. So possibly without that sort of motivating factor that's represented by initiatives like Our Haber, the government would have been replaced years ago. Yeah. So this media in- industrial complex is absolutely essential, really, to the government's survival. And it's hard to imagine it surviving without it. I mean, what do you make of that argument? I mean, if AKP could succeed to run a functioning economy with, you know, high you know, growth rates, or at least sustainable growth rates, Ahaba would destroy AKP. But once you recognize that, you know, you have to keep on power while the economy is not functioning or, you know, the institutionally there's a state chaos. So the only thing is you double down, as you said it. I mean, that would not be the perfect solution. If AKP could manage to have a running economy, maybe Ahaba would be excessive But, you know, given the conditions, given the circumstances, I think Ahaba is the only option, not the best option, but the only feasible option. And you also mention in the book, I think, an underexplored, underappreciated feature of conservative pro-government discourse in Turkey. And that is how many pundits launder some of these Western conservative alt-right anti-liberal talking points into Turkey's public debate. And that may be surprising for some listeners to hear how those pundits are in many ways on the same page as those alt-right figures in the US and the Anglosphere particularly. So just expand on this point a bit for us. Yeah, actually in Turkey for the last two years, there's a huge political propaganda on feminism and LGBT. In Turkey also mainly associated with the Islamic you know, distance to homosexuality or women empowerment. But I mean, if you go to 1980s, I mean, I mean, there's not nothing about homosexuality because everybody agrees that it's wrong and it's very marginal. But of course, in 2010s, now the you know the LGBT identities have been more fully expressed. And actually, shockingly, AKP cannot suppress it. I mean, in the university campuses now, of course, you can see LGBT couples. Well, you can also, for example, in universities, you can suppress the boards, I mean, the billboards where, you know, the university clubs mention their activities because, you know, it's, it can be regulated. But, of course, you cannot regulate the sexual lives of the of the citizens. So there's a kind of LGBT panic. There's also feminism panic. Of course, Turkey have, have revoked, have left the Istanbul Convention because the political propaganda said that, you know, it's, it's uh, actually uh, LGBT propaganda in the discourse of women equality. And one more thing is there has been always a very resistance within AKP for its anti-feminist movements because there are many women MPs in AKP sitting in the parliament. If you look at like 2002, there are only a couple of women 
MPs in the Turkish parliament. Now there are many, and AKP is, the number in AKP is no less than the others except the Kurdish party, which has many number of women MPs. So actually, it's a creeping thing. Even the Muslim women are disagreeing with their male colleagues. That creates a moral panic. And of course, at this time, they have been very much related with the Trumpism, Trumpist, you know, masculinism, also Putin's masculinism. So they actually imported conspiracy theories on LGBT and feminism, both from the United States and also from Russia and East Europe. So the, the LGBT panic is not a natural continuum of Islamic, you know, distance with homosexuality. It is it is completely imported from the East European agenda. Of course, it's rooted at some level in the Islamic tradition, but, you know, it has been a very small issue. Now, one of the shifts that you outline in recent years is how the pro-Erdogan, pro-government messaging has, in a sense, become less ideological, weirdly enough. So previously, there was this widespread assumption that Islamism was a coherent ideology espoused and propagated by determined, obstinate devotees who had a clear agenda. But you argue that the reality has actually proved very far from this assumption. And instead of being inflexible, the government has shifted over time in quite an opportunistic way. And it now presents itself basically as the state itself. So it's a conservative national representative facing off against various subversive forces seeking to undermine the state's authority. And this has become a common legitimization deployed by many public figures and media performers and intellectuals who've allied with the AKP and Erdogan in recent years. And that includes many who who don't actually come from an Islamist ideological background. So could you just talk about that dynamic? You know, some of those individuals who have joined hands with the government over the years, many of those figures from secular backgrounds, many from security focused backgrounds. How has the government wooed them and what's the nature of that alliance? But in the more optimistic phase, those who are poor AKP, the secular pro-AKP guys with liberal or leftist origins were saying that while AKP wants to continue in power, it need, it has to be a catch-all, catch-all party. So a catch-all party cannot be ideological. And this, that turned out to be true. But it turned out to be that to become a catch-all party, it doubled down on its conspiratorial rhetoric because conspiratorialism is transcending political divides and people from an Islamic agenda can have uh, common points with people who are coming forward with secular nationalists or centrist right-wing people on this conspiratorial platform. So actually, this is a way of AKP transforming into a catch-all party from an, from an ideological party. Another thing is that there are two kinds of allies, secular intellectual allies of AKP. One is those who have supported the AKP in its reformist phase, And they have adapted to its transformation into a populist party using their erstwhile liberal rhetoric to whitewash AKP. Now they adapted to its populist jargon. The second is the emergence and the rise of the security intellectuals. And actually, the AKP, of course, have a showdown with the military. And AKP really could exert its, own, its power only after it pacified the military in in the early 2010s. But also the military men also 
adapted to this. It's not a coalition because AKP is the upper hand, but still the AKP also saw that it's a, it's a good way to redefine AKP as the real defender of the national interests. And the security intellectuals also adapt. Also, for example, they appear on TVs and speak national interests and the national security issues completely disregarding any political implications. They uh, act as kind of a simulator of the normality that AKP runs a normal country looking only for national interests because they all they define themselves as upholding national interests. So they create a kind of a symbiosis. So there is always space for secular intellectuals. Once you understand the limits and the lines, and within this line, you can be a public intellectual without showing any open obedience to the AKP. You speak as you were speaking, as a kind of a centrist, as a Kemalist, as a nationalist, knowing what to say and knowing what not to say. Now, there's a chapter at the end of the book on history and particularly the propagation of a particular version of the Ottoman Empire, very simplistic version, a fantasy version of Ottoman history, and how that history is politicized and mobilized into massive identity-based culture wars. And obviously, this is a huge subject, but could you also address how has reinterpreting history and the spreading of this populist interpretation of history with the full force of the state, how does that fit into this picture that you're painting for us? Now, in Turkey, there are four official national holidays, and they they commemorate the only events that took place only within a, only four years' time. So this is the National Independence War, associated, of course, with the Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. So in the traditional Republican historiography, people are proud of the Ottomans, but the founding and politically relevant history is limited to the birth of the Republic and the war against invaders during the National Independence War. Against this, for AKP, the center of Turkish history is the Ottoman Empire and its zenith. The conquest of Istanbul has been always an alternative national holiday for Islamists since 1950s. It did not become a national holiday, but for example, in every 29th of May, it has been celebrated with fanfare, unprecedented before. Also, for example, there's a very small, short-time celebration of the Battle of Kut. For example, this was only a fantasy of Ahmet Avutoğlu. This was a war which Ottomans defeated the British near Baghdad during the First World War. And so it has been reintroduced to the public sphere as the forgotten, consciously forgotten war kind of thing. But once Ahmet Avutoğlu is off, the uh, fanfare about the war also has been forgotten. So in the alternative historical approach of the AKP, Ottoman Empire is at the center of the Turkish history and it's the reference point. For example, there is also Kaldo Abdülhamid. Abdülhamid is one of the last Ottoman sultans who had been deposed by the young Turks. The Islamists always saw himself as kind of an anti-Atatürk. Whereas for the secularists, the republicans, he represented the, you know, the archaic, obsolete face of the Ottomans. Now, for example, there's an excessive cult of Abdul Hamid, for example, and there, were, there are many TV series in state television 
for example, one is centered on Abdul Hamid. So it has been the kind of a sanctifying of the Abdul Hamid cult. Uh, interestingly, the most popular of all these historical dramas takes place on the birth of the Ottomans in the late 13th century. This is interesting because it's more nationalist than Islamic. And AKP also sees that once you make an Islamic drama, actually nobody watches because you know it lacks some of the must of a drama. But when you produce a drama that relates with the Turkish origins, so this is a kind of a compromise of the AKP. You have to be nationalist, but in in your own way, is in your Islamic way. So this history and the Ottoman past presents such a compromise. Now, to conclude, we're entering the election period now. I guess when this episode is published, we're going to be right in it. So I just wonder if you could look ahead, really. You know, as always in elections, we're going to see many of the tendencies that you outline in this book go into overdrive. Are you excited about that prospect or uh, horrified? You know, how do you see the next few months going? Well, it, it has been it very tensious and it will not look like any other AKP era election because... For the first time, the opposition is really contesting and Lee really has at least 50% chance. Actually, we will see how the AKP pundits will take positions. They have to show their loyalty because this is about their survival now for the first time. It was not the case, for example, in the 2018 elections. So that will make the case, I think, more interesting in terms of their positioning, how much they show their voice, etc., etc. So in terms of this, it will not resemble previous elections. There is always political propaganda, but now in the AKP, it's completely now whoever can defend the AKP with more bombast become public intellectuals in the AKP. Time people who actually hardly can read and write now become very popular intellectuals. And now it's their survival. So they will act knowing this. That was Doan Gurpinar. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 189. Please remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Please also rate or write a positive review of Turkey Book Talk wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.